Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it's great to be back here with you talking about Revelation. It's better than last week. Uh, it's all seriousness. If you missed last week, I just want to say real quick, it was, it was a good day. It was a good day. It was a hard day. It was a good day. Um, and if you missed it, you don't know what I'm talking about unless you heard parts of the rumor mill. So real quick, we had a nice little family chat, and um, you're going to not want to miss it. If you go to Kingsway, if you call this your home, even if you haven't officially joined yet, you need to go online and check it out. But we're not leaving it online forever. So a few things, you won't find it in the normal sermon section online. There's a couple good reasons. For instance, in the 30-day span from last Sunday to the 30 days prior to that, um, about 3,000 people had gone online and downloaded or listened to the sermons. That's a lot. That's 3,000 individual unique downloads. So that's a lot. Um, that's more than we have here every single Sunday. There are people coming from all over the world, all over the United States, and all over our community. And we know that when somebody visits Kingsway, the first place they visit is online. They go to our front page, and they usually click on I'm new here, and then they usually go right to the sermon section. And so we didn't really want our first foot forward for somebody going to visit and check out Kingsway to be an inside family chat. So if you go to our website, kingswaychurch.org, you can click on this little section called the blog, and you'll find that there. And by the way, our hope is to start expanding content on there, giving you more stuff for me. There's a lot of stuff every single week, especially in Revelation, that I'm just not having time to dig into. Uh, today, we're just going to start and go all the way up to dinner, and uh, we'll take a snack break like my kids in the middle. Preach it! And uh, no, we aren't doing that. But in all seriousness, there are things, if you open the Kingsway Church app, You'll see in the app, there's going to be things I don't have time to cover, and there's going to be things that I'm just barely touching on that there's so much more to say. And so we're wrestling with how do we get more content out there? For those of you who are really wanting more to go deeper and wrestle with things, and maybe could use a midweek pick-me-up. So um, just things we're talking about, but go online and check it out. You need to do it. You need to plan on about an hour and a half, and uh, you need to do it in the next week or so because we're going to take it down. And uh, just letting you know up front, you need to plan on doing that. If you keep putting it off, putting it off, you're going to regret it, and you're going to wish you hadn't put it off. So do that. All right, last thing real quick, and then I just want to pray and focus my thoughts because I got a lot to cover today, is um, we just this weekend hit our triple digit decisions for Jesus Christ since January. We celebrated our 100th baptism. Good, good, good thing. Yeah. And um, I'm saying that to celebrate Jesus, but also to celebrate Jesus and you because so many of you have poured into your life groups, your kids, your student ministries, and I just want to say thank you to all of your hard work that's paying off. Let's pray and ask Jesus to come and be here. I have a lot to teach you today, and I want Jesus to move in your hearts more than I want him to move in your heads. Let's pray. Father God, as we dig into Pergamum, Lord, we find ourselves very much uh, understanding their pain, their struggle, their, their, their strife uh, here in America. And um, God, I just pray today as we open up what you said to them, would you speak to us? God, there's going to be people in this room right now who came to church not expecting what was going to happen, and you're going to have a hard word for them. And God, I pray to them right now, would you soften their heart? Would you break through the hardness? You tell us, Holy Spirit, that you will go before us. You will be the one convicting the world of sin. It's not going to be me or my words or illustrations. It's going to be you. And so, God, would you go and convict hearts right now? Soften us up to you that we might turn to you and find life everlasting. God, for those in this room who find themselves in Pergamum and just need encouraged, God, we pray this sermon would help to make them bold for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to try to do better than I've done in any other services by being tighter on this front end so I can get to more on the back end. The back end's the good stuff, but I love history. And if you don't know that, man, some of you, the reason you come to Kingsway is because I talk history stuff. So I just got to cover some of this real quick, but I got to go faster than I have in the other services. So first of all, 
There are seven churches in the book of Revelation. These seven churches represent uh, uh, not every church that was in the area. They represent what I believe is all churches through all time. You will find one church at some point somewhere in this. You could go to any church in the world today and you would find them connecting with at least one of these seven churches today. Now that's important because there are seven letters to seven churches and each church is represented by an angel or a pastor, a messenger, and so there's seven constantly in the book of Revelation. This is important for those of you who this is your first time to Kingsway or you took the summer off and you're coming back because the number seven doesn't just mean three plus four, five plus two, six plus five. Just checking. No mathematical college. Just make sure you're with me. The number seven in the entire Bible, but especially in Revelation, has a weight, a weight to it. We tend to think very numerically in America. This has a weight to it. Here's what I mean. So there are seven days in a week. Why seven and not eight? Why seven and not six? Because the Lord created six days and seven days rested. It's a complete number. That's the number that was needed. It's complete. We're told to work the land for six years and rest it on the seventh. We're told after seven sevens, there's a year of jubilee. The year of jubilee is a powerful year when all debts are erased. We ought to try this in America sometime. And that was morally, spiritually, as well as financially. The number seven, if you go into Daniel's prophecy, I think it's a Daniel 9, we have the 70 weeks prophecy. And it's seven. 77. So seven sevens, 62 sevens are decreed for you and your people, Daniel writes, and he prophesies to the exact year that the Messiah would come. Jesus is baptized and his ministry begins. It's a powerful thing. But when you add it up, it's 490 years. Seven times seven times 10. Why? Because it's a complete number and it stands for the perfect year of Jubilee. Seven and 10 are what we would call complete numbers. We'll see them throughout Revelation. They are important. I'm laying a foundation. Let me just give you one last one. So when Jesus shows up, he fulfills Daniel's prophecy. Seven times seven times 10. He's brought the complete fulfilled healing that the Messiah would bring. Then he says to his disciples, now you forgive each other as God has forgiven you. And Peter says, how many times, Lord? Like seven times? That sounds like a good number. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, not seven times. Seventy times seven. In other words, forgive completely. Are you with me? So we're looking at these seven churches represented by seven lampstands. Now, we're at this church, Pergamum. And Pergamum is actually a real city. It was located in that day in what was called Asia Minor, or, or My Asia was kind of the name of that general area. Today, we would call this Turkey. When you read Asia in scriptures, don't think China, Japan, Korea, so on. You need to think Turkey, Middle East. It was a different part. The world has changed. That's what it means in the scriptures. And in modern day Turkey, are these real seven churches. In fact, this real city today, Bergama, is what we would call Pergamos back in the day. You can see even still a connection in the name. And let me just show you what this part of Bergamo would look like today. Here we go. Look at the screen. Look at that. Do you see in the background? It's up on a high hill. Do you see in the background the water? Beautiful mountainous range. I heard somebody say once, Jesus was no fool. He came to the Middle East because it is a Mediterranean culture, and only, I think, it's 3% or 4% of the world is Mediterranean in nature. Jesus knew, if I'm going to have to go to this place, I better pick the nicest kind. It's absolutely beautiful. It's got fantastic weather. You can kind of see it here, and it's hard to tell. These are all ruins. There's actually a real city. If you were to turn the camera and look the other direction, you'd see there's a real city, Bergama, all around there, kind of at the base of the hill. Let me show you what this would have looked like. Here's an artist rendering from back in that day, back in antiquity. This is just a guesstimate. Realize it's not exact, but it's based off 
off what you can see there. So you see Trajan's temple and Athena's temple and the altar of Zeus and the Agora and Dionysus' temple and there's a theater right there. You saw that on the hillside. The city of Pergamum is one of the most important cities, perhaps the most important city in this part of what was then called Asia or Asia Minor kind of back then in that day. And the reason this was such an important city is it was the capital city of this part for 300 or over 300 years. In fact, Alexander the Great had established it as such. And at some point, I believe it was Alexander, I could be off of my ruler, but he willed it on to the Roman government. And so it got ruled into the Roman government and it stayed as such. And as such, it kept growing and developing. This was not a port city like Ephesus or Smyrna. So it didn't have necessarily the business and the commerce, but because it was the capital city, People had to make trips there on a regular basis to do certain kinds of business. This was a really, really big deal. And let me just tell you about some of the things that helped to make it a big deal. I'll tell you about the first one. The first one is the theater. You saw it in that one picture. Here's the picture of the theater again, modern day theater. There you go. Pretty amazing, isn't it? You can leave that up for a second. If you were to stand down in the grassy area at the bottom there and you were to be doing a play or some musical thing of some sort, I have been told, I've not gotten to visit, I really want to go visit the seven churches, there's a tour you could do. I've been told you can have somebody stand all the way at the top of that terrace and somebody at the bottom could be talking about as loud as I am without a microphone and you can hear them. We often think of the ancient people as morons. We think they don't have a clue. But in reality, they understood a lot more about this world than we did. We've let technology cloud our understanding of the earth and the way God has created the earth. By the way, ever notice Jesus gets on a boat, goes out to the water? Science will tell you there's a certain spot. If you go out into the water a certain distance, your voice will carry on the waves, and it's like a megaphone. Oh, my goodness. It's like he made the thing. Anyway, back to where we were. <laughs> I apologize. The last service. Okay. And so this is just amazing. Now, there are other cities that had theaters, and uh, it's not to say that this was a big, an important city because it had a theater, but... Only important cities had theaters. And what you need to just get out of this is it was a cultural hub. All right, let me show you the next one. Here's the library. This is modern day. It doesn't look like much, does it? Well, in the ancient world, it was one of two libraries. That's it. Now, the other one is in Egypt and Alexandria. And um, it was the biggest, most world-famous library. In fact, because uh, the Egyptians were the first ones really to make papyrus, you know, from the reeds and stuff right there, you learn about all this in history class, right? They were able to develop a library. Well, Pergamum decided we want a library that rivals that one, and so they started developing a library. And so they went literally and tried to hire the librarian from the uh, library in Alexandria, except for the king or whatever ruler of uh, Egypt was like, uh-uh, he's our guy. So to prevent it from happening, he had a arrested and thrown in prison that's a bad day like dude I'm just really good at my job really now what they also did in Egypt is they ended up passing a law that no more papyrus could go from the Alexandrian area from Egypt to Pergamos because they wanted their library not to succeed they wanted the library so Pergamos was like no we've got this dream we've already put this money into it and so what they did is they went and developed a writing system a writing material called parchment and you guys are like, wow, I learned about this in sixth grade, I think. And parchment was basically where you take animal skins and you dry them out and you write on them. The Pergamum Library at one point contained 200,000 books, which is no small task when you figured they didn't have the iCloud. They had to write all these things down by hand. Wow. This was a really, really, really big deal. 
But beyond just, you know, theaters and libraries, which just go to show you what an important city it was, there were other things going on there. They were one of, if not the first city in the ancient world to have a hospital. But don't think of hospitals like you think of today. Uh, this was really the temple of Asclepios. Let me show you a statue of Asclepios. This is a real statue. Exists. I think this is in Germany, but I didn't write that down where I got this statue from. But there is a statue of Asclepios. He was a false Greco-Roman god. He was the god of healing, the god of medicine. And they literally had a temple to Asclepios and you could come in and they would take you down into like under the ground. They've got this system where they've got running water down there. And they, they had discovered that sometimes people just need to be in a peaceful, soothing environment and their bodies would heal themselves. Unlike our hospitals that just have beeping and leave you going, what's wrong? And they get, get out of here. They would put them in this place with the running water, and the whole idea is that Asclepios would heal you. Some people they would actually bring into part of the temple, and they would lay them down, and there were all these non-venomous snakes. And the non-venomous snakes, if one of them came up and rubbed against you or touched you, it was said you would be healed. I'll take modern medicine. Okay. Back to the statue. Let's look at the statue. You notice on Asclepios's little, uh, I don't know what you call that thing, staff, that's the word. You should come up here. Notice on his staff, notice what's wrapped around there. It's a snake. Let me show you a coin from Pergamos back in the day. Notice on the right. Does that look like anything else you've ever seen before? Why don't you look at the next picture? Hmm. I, um, I could spend a whole sermon just on this, but I won't. If you were to go to Asclepios' temple, you would find written all over inscriptions that say this, Asclepios Soter. It's Greek. And if you were to take first, you know, first year Bible college, you'd find really quickly in first year Bible college, there's this thing called Soteriology. And it's the study of salvation. Because the word Soter in Greek means to save. And so people worshiped Asclepios as the one who saves them. Now, salvation to a Greek wouldn't necessarily mean what we would define salvation as, to, as a Christian. Salvation to them meant healing and rescue and saved. I mean, we would use all those same words, but we would use them in the eternal sense in that a right relationship with God, no matter what happens in this life, fixed what's going to come. And they would have used it to say, look, I'm dying, I'm sick, it feels like I'm dying and I need help, so I'm going to Asclepios, my Savior, to heal me. This is huge. They also, by the way, called Zeus, Zeus Soter, Zeus our Savior. And this is where the Church of Pergamum exists. Now let me just say this, it's just a little, I don't even have time for this, but I'm gonna say it anyway because I want to. Um, as I'm studying these ancient Greco-Roman false gods, it amazes me how much our culture, medicine, and science have been wrapped up around it. It amazes me as I look out at our planets and stars Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, all of these are false gods from all these other religions. And, I, and I've often wondered, in Isaiah, we're told that God knows the stars and he calls them by name when he put them into the sky. And I sometimes wonder how offensive it might be to God that we call these things after the name of false gods, but yet he has a real name for them that he alone gives. 
And that's going to lay a foundation. I didn't just say that as a little tidbit. That's going to lay a foundation for us to build on. The offense of God is something that God takes very seriously and something we need to take more seriously. And we're going to see that in Pergamum. Let me tell you about one last thing in Pergamum, and then we'll dig into Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. But let me, let me just show you this first. The other thing, the big thing, the biggest thing perhaps in all of Pergamos was the altar of Zeus. And Zeus was the god. I'll get to that in a second. Leave it up there. Zeus was the god of ancient Rome. I mean, there were a lot of pantheon, what they call them, a lot of gods, but he was the most powerful. There wasn't a god like there is for us. That's what made Christians so countercultural. Zeus was the guy. He was the most powerful. And if you've ever followed it, you may know some of this. Here's a computer rendering of, of kind of what a temple would have looked like. This is not the temple in Pergamos. I want to be clear. I wanted to show you this because that's supposed to be Zeus seated on a stone. Look how massive he is. And look at, you notice right about his waist where his legs are. You'll notice his, his non-six-pack abs, but he's pretty fit. You'll notice right beside that are two places where he would have rested his arms on his throne. And down below that are kind of as it comes down, the, the, you know, the, the way it just goes down to the legs. It's the bottom of the throne. I want you to see that because that's why they built this. Now look at the real altar that was in Pergamum. Notice what it looks like. This is actually in a museum in Berlin. I didn't do enough study to know if this is actually the size replicated, but this is huge, and you get an idea for how big it is in this museum in Berlin, because look at all the people standing around, and, and it just gives you an idea how big this was. This sat most of the way, maybe three-fourths, 80% of the way up the top of the mountain, and there people would show up from all over the ancient world. It was the premier temple to Zeus. There were others, but this was the premier one, and people would come and sacrifice animals to Zeus at this temple 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There was smoke billowing up from the city, and since the city, as you already saw, sat on top of a hill, people could look up all the time and see where their real help was coming from. Zeus Soter. It's been said by historians that uh, Pergamum reeked of burning animal flesh. Mm, anybody going to Five Guys in a little bit? <laughs> now, what would happen if you needed to make a sacrifice to Zeus? Christians weren't supposed to do this. You would come in, let's just say you brought your cow, and you would take the best part of the cow, and you'd offer it to the priest to offer to Zeus. I don't, I don't know what that is, a filet mignon? Anyway, they'd take the, cut off the best parts, and they'd offer it there, but then they'd take the rest of the meat, and they'd go down to the marketplace, and they'd sell it. Now, what they would do is sometimes they'd take that meat or sometimes the meat that was sacrificed to these various gods and goddesses in Pergamum, and they would hold banquets, parties. And Christians from time to time would get invited to those parties. And they would be from meat sacrificed to idols. And, and it left Christians struggling today with modern ethical problems. What are we supposed to do if we're invited to one of these parties? I mean, Jesus ate with tax collectors, right? So what do we do? And it's a good question, some of which gets addressed today. Some of it's just left for us to struggle with God and say, I want to honor you above all else, but God, how do I do that? And now Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. 
A few things real quick. Notice this. Jesus says to them, I know where you live. In almost all the other churches, Jesus says to them, I know what you do. This is the one church he says, I know where you live. To me, this is huge because this is Jesus saying, I'm so intimately aware of your life. I know the situation you're in. I know the city you're in. I know the marriage you're in. I know the school you're in. I know the family you're in. I know it all. It's huge. You can rest tonight knowing that your God sees and your God knows. But then he says to them, I know you're in the city where Satan's throne is. It's the Greek word thronos, thronos. And it's this idea of kingdom, of reign. Now, one of the questions Bible scholars have is, is Jesus referring specifically to, say, Asclepios Soter, who they would call their savior, or is he referring to Zeus Soter, the greatest or most powerful of the ancient Greco-Roman gods? And I would say it doesn't really matter. I think the bigger point is this is one of the most powerful, pro, um, prominent cities in that day, and Satan has a foothold there. Maybe even literally Satan is there. Now, scripture for you real quick. For those of you who are, you know, been watching way too many ghost movies and, you know, Halloween's coming up. There is a real spiritual being named Satan, and you ought to be afraid of him if you don't know Jesus. Now, Satan is real, guys. I'm not going to sit here and act like he's not. I realize if we're going to have a conversation with a non-believer and you're checking us out, you're not sure what to think about Jesus, I don't normally start there, but it's where the text takes us. There's a really good chance you've never met Satan or been around Satan. You may have thought you married him for a while. You're wrong. <laughs> By the way, all of us are way too far down the totem pole for Satan to be too concerned with us. But he is active and he is somewhere. He's probably attached to a religious leader or a political leader. And before you jump and think I'm saying something, I'm not. All I'm saying is that's probably where he is. And in this day, I really think Jesus is saying this is the hub for Satan. Now, Satan has minions, not the little yellow kind, real demons. And they're out doing his bidding and they're messing with you and they're messing with me and they're messing with our church all the time. But beyond that, honestly, the bigger problem isn't the demonic world, and this may be hard for some of you to grasp. The biggest problem is us. James says this, what leads you into sin is you. You want what you can't have, so you kill and you tear down others to get it. That's not a Satan thing. That's a me thing. Satan just happens to be, and his minions happen to be perfectly placed in our lives to lead us down a path toward destruction. And he's seeking whom he may devour. I believe what John is saying to this church of Pergamum is you are located literally in the hub of Satan. There is so much evil present. There is so much constant worship present of the evil one right there, and that's where he is. That is his city. His throne literally through Zeus is there, but he's just there, and he controls that place, and you're in that city. And then he says this. I, <clears throat> this is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. This really isn't sharp. That's just the best I could do. I had to do some research, and I didn't do a lot, so I'm not an expert. Some of you who are smarter than me, okay. A single-edged sword, you may have seen this. It's kind of like, more of like an uh, Arabian kind of thing. You know, it's, a lot of times it's rounded. It's, it's one way. You could attack one way with a single-edged sword. But a double-edged sword, you can attack both ways. You could attack this direction, and if you had to, you could go back up and attack that direction. It's sharp on both sides. In Revelation 1, 
John says Jesus has one of these coming out of his mouth. I don't think that's intended to be literal. Jesus has these fiery eyes and bronze bright feet and sword coming out of his mouth. I think whatever John saw in heaven, he's trying to now put into words for these churches. And he picked a description that matches each of them. And this is huge. This will become so relevant in ways I don't have time to dig into because I had to leave a lot on the cutting room floor. But one of the things that, that this is relevant of is there's a guy, his name is Antipas. We don't know anything about him, but apparently he died being faithful to Jesus. So now what you see is Jesus making a play on words. I've got this sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth, and I know maybe a sword has literally killed one of yours, but I want you to know the one who has the most powerful sword is with you. Antipas is called a martyr. The Greek word for martyr doesn't mean what the English word for martyr means. When we think of martyrs, we think of people who've died, right, for their cause. But the word martyr in Greek is really just the word martis, and all it means is witness, now, in the book of Revelation, and really throughout the New Testament, there are those who witnessed all the way to death. They were faithful all the way to death. However, you could be a witness and not die. Now, everybody's going to die. The question is, when the heat's turned up and the sword is put to your throat, what will you do with it? Will you stay faithful to the end? Will you trust the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, or will you bow down to the human sword? Yesterday, I, I did some teaching out of um, Luke and Matthew, and there's so much, gosh, there's so much I want to say, I just don't have time. One of the things Jesus says in this text I read yesterday to our volunteers here at A Beautiful Life is uh, Jesus says, um, do not be afraid of the one who hurts the flesh, and after that can do absolutely nothing to you. Instead, fear the one who can kill you, and after that can throw you into hell. And that's what Jesus is trying to get to here to the church of Pergamum. Don't be afraid of their threats, even if they run you through. Instead, you fear God because after that last breath, that's what comes next. That's what Jesus is going to get to. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few complaints against you. This is not going to go well for you. I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel he taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Let's start at 15 and work our way back to 14 and then confuse everybody, okay? Verse 15. To be honest, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. We aren't 100% sure. The Nicolaitans are a, a, a heretic group of people. They, they have twisted the words of God and they are confusing people. We see them in Ephesus in the beginning of Revelation 2 and we see them again here. The word Nicolaitan has a connection uh, to the word Balaam. If you go back and analyze the two, they have this root, which makes a lot of people think that they're the same group. I think they're the same group and I think that's what the New Living Translation has translated here for your benefit. So you have the teaching of the Nicolaitans and where they're tripping up the church is through the teachings of Balaam. And so you're like, okay, I'm confused. I know, stick with me and I'll see if I can make it all tie together. There's a lot of this today. It can be confusing if you're not paying attention. You need to think of this like a puzzle. And as you put the pieces together, you start to figure out what Jesus is saying. But as you put only one or two pieces in place, it doesn't all come together. So this piece of the puzzle, if you were to go all the way back into your Old Testament and read November, read Numbers, that's a different N word, Numbers 22 to 31. We're not going to do that right now. I'm just going to trust you to let me summarize it and you can read it on your own. What you're going to find in Numbers 22 to 31 is one of the most mind-boggling stories in the entire Bible. And here's why. When you were a child and you grew up in Sunday school, you heard the story and you thought, that's why nobody believes these crazy people called Christians. 
Now, what happens in Numbers 22, and I just want to warn you, if you're online, you're one of the 3,000 or so people listening online to this, or you're here today, and you're not sure about Jesus, this isn't where I would normally start you. It's just where today's text takes us. And as I say this story, there's going to be parts you go, okay, see, I just don't believe, that's why I don't trust the Bible. And here's what I would say. Go back and study if Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead. And if you come to the conclusion he did that, the rest of these pieces get a whole lot easier. Numbers 22. God has led the Israelites out of Egypt where they were slaves to their taskmaster, Pharaoh. By the way, there's a whole sermon in here about Satan and what Satan has been doing to make us slaves and how God's been leading us in our own spiritual exodus away from him, our slave driver, who's been commanding our lives to do what he wants and not what God wants. But God comes in and he frees the Israelites and he takes them, eventually he's going to take them into the promised land. And what we call this land in between, by the way, this land we are in right now in a very metaphoric way, we are saved by the grace of God, brought out of slavery to Satan, to sin and death, but now we're in the in-between as we wait for the final consummation when Jesus returns. That's where we are right now. We are in the desert wandering, trying to be faithful, and we're way too much like the Israelites. And here wandering around, it's kind of this thing is coming to a close and God's about to take them into the promised land. They come across a certain group of people called the Moabites, and the Moabites have a king whose name is Balak. And Balak has heard all the rumors about what happened to Israel when they were in Egypt. And he sees their massive numbers. And he's terrified that they might just decide to turn and take off the Moabites. So Balak goes and he calls on Balaam, a false prophet. Numbers 22 to 25. Now, here's some crazy stuff, guys, and I don't fully know what to do with it. I didn't spend a lot of time studying it, but I'll tell you, we don't know what to do with it. Balaam apparently has tapped into the spiritual world. If you don't know this, if what I'm about to tell you is new information for you, you need to go look into this or you need to trust me and you need to do something about it now. There is real power in the spiritual world and it is not to be messed with. Horoscopes, psychics, casting of lots, tarot cards, speaking to the dead, The Bible is crystal clear. In fact, there's this passage in Deuteronomy. God uses every word known to the Hebrews at that time to say, have nothing to do with any of these things. They are evil and from Satan himself. And apparently Balaam has some connection to the spiritual world. Balak sends some people over and says, Balaam, would you come and curse the Israelites? And Balaam's answer is, I can only do, I'll seek God, I can only do what he tells me to do. We don't believe that Balaam was a prophet of God. And what you're going to see is what is amazing what happens next. So this conversation goes on and on and on. Finally, Balaam says, I'll come, but I'm only telling you I'll come. I can only say what God tells me to say. So Balaam hops on his donkey. He starts riding off to the Moabites to see King Balak, except for his donkeys just keep stopping in the middle of the road. He's like, you stubborn animal. What is wrong with you? Finally, at one point, they're in this tight pass, and he's riding on his donkey, and his donkey stops and literally scoots over and crushes him against the side of the road. And Balaam gets up, and he's beating the tar out of his donkey. He's just kicking this thing. He's angry, whatever it is. And his donkey looks at him and says, why are you beating me? True story, Numbers 22. And my theory in general is if your animal ever talks to you, don't argue. (laughs) Just shut up and listen for a minute. You either had way too much to drink Or God has a message for you. (laughs) He's arguing with his donkey. Finally, his eyes are open and he sees standing in the road an angel of the Lord who's preventing Balaam from going and cursing the Israelites. The angel moves and Balaam goes on into Moab. And when he gets there, he tells King Balak, I can't do what you're asking me to do, but I'll tell you what, I'll seek the Lord. So he sets up seven altars (laughs) three times. 
He sets up seven altars and he sacrifices the altar. And each time he seeks the Lord, and the Lord says, no, you can't, you can't curse them. You can't curse them. Finally, the third time, Balaam comes back to talk to King Balak. By the way, what Balak does is fascinating. Balak keeps trying to twist the words of the Lord to get Balaam to do what Balak wants him to do. Sound like anybody else you know? Just twisting it a little bit. Well, he, he said this, what if he did this? What if you twist it? Like, can you do it if we do it this way? And Balaam keeps seeking the Lord. And the Lord keeps saying no. Finally, the third time, Balaam comes back and he says, all right, I'm gonna do something. And he goes out and he stands on this mountain. And he's looking out over the Israelites and he blesses them. Balak is ticked. What are you doing? You can't bless them. I brought you out here to curse them. I don't know what you're doing to me. And they have this conversation. Look, I can't do it. And that's the way it ends in Numbers 25. And by the way, this is a huge motif for the Israelites. You keep reading throughout the Old Testament. They quote this story over and over and over again because it's a prominent sign of the sovereignty of God when God could take the mouth of his enemies and make it speak blessing rather than cursing. God can do that. But this is the bigger point. We don't fully get this until you get to chapter 31. Apparently, as Balaam was leaving Balak on his way out, he said, look, uh, he gave in to the enemy. He said, look, you really want to trip up these people. I can't curse them. Real God won't let me. However, if you really want to trip them up, here's what you do. You take your women and you send them down there and you have them seduce the Israelite men. They'll sleep with the women, then they'll want to please the women. Before you know it, they'll be worshiping your gods and uh, you'll bring them down. And go read Numbers 31. That's exactly what happens. And the anger and the fury of the Lord starts to burn against the Israelites. God took Balaam and forced him to pronounce a blessing instead of a cursing, but he tripped him up anyway, not externally, internally. And the people of the Lord turned away from God because of their hunger and desires for sexual sin. And they ended up worshiping Satan. And go read your Old Testament. You'll find every time sexual sin is brought up, it's always connected to idol worship because it's really sexual sin, guys, is always about worship. It's about being greedy, it's about getting more, it's about you being God and everybody obeying you and worshiping you and doing what you want, what makes you happy and what pleases you. Let's just be honest for a minute, isn't that how it goes? And I'm not just talking to the men in the room. Ladies, when you read your books and you watch your love stories, isn't it because the guy finally gets it all right and does exactly what your husband wouldn't ever do, your boyfriend wouldn't ever do? And we are so easily tricked into this. I come back to Revelation chapter 2 and read again what John says or what John says Jesus said. Verse 14, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. This is huge. See, we've compromised, church, I believe, with all my heart. I don't know if you know this, uh, pornography today, at least the last I heard, was uh, at roughly a $9 billion industry. Last I heard, it makes more than the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL combined. Now, maybe the number's actually higher, I don't know. At least that true was true at least a couple years ago. And we live in the country where, and I don't remember the exact statistic, but the vast, vast, vast majority, I think it was around 85% of the world's pornography is created in America. That's not even close. We live in modern-day Pergamum in a lot of ways. We do. And it's everywhere you go. It's everywhere you look. 
and it's becoming okay, you know? God's good, God's gracious, he loves us, he'll forgive us, so it's not really hurting anything, is it? Except for Jesus says, yes, it's hurting, it's hurting me and it's hurting you. This is such a big deal that in Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul has gathered together. See, as Paul's going out and he's spreading the gospel to all these Gentile believers, they're converting and these Jewish believers are saying, you can become a Christian, but you have to go get circumcised and you gotta follow the kosher dietary laws. And, and Paul's saying, no, no, that's, those are all the things Jesus got rid of. So Paul gathers together some of his buddies and in Acts 15, he goes back to Jerusalem and he gets Peter and James and the other elders in Jerusalem together and he says, look, we need you to decide once and for all what to say to these Gentile converts. Here's what I'm saying, here's what there's saying you guys decide and so they have this long conversation I love this because you only get this much of the conversation so for those of us who really hate that we don't know everything about everything we don't know, ever know everything about everything and Peter and James finally stand up in Acts 15 they say you know what brothers we've been listening to the conversation here's our decision we should not make it any harder for those coming to faith in Jesus Christ we should not add any extra burden on them so then he tells them here's the only things we're going to say and they write it in a letter and say Paul take this to all those people you're sharing the gospel with Acts chapter 15 28 29 here's the letter short and sweet and to the point for it seemed good to the holy spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements you must abstain from eating food offered to idols from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals those are more idol sacrifices and from sexual immorality if you do this you will do well farewell and all the gentiles went Woo-hoo! no circumcision it was a good day However, it also meant all the Gentiles in all these foreign countries who have all these foreign temples where you can go in and literally have sex with a temple prostitute. We got a major problem now. Because that means we're not going to be able to take part in society the way we used to. And they would literally hold these banquets to these gods and false gods, and they'd invite all the locals. Hey, come and come and come to this banquet. It's for the god or goddess so-and-so. And people would gather together, and they'd take this meat, sacrificed to idols. Hey, come on. And the Christians had to say, I can't go there anymore. Oh, come on. It's just some food. Yeah, but it's a compromise on something that offends my God. And guys, I, I think if Christians were to ask this question, if we were to ask this question, where have I compromised on things that offend God? We might not like the answer, but it might just lead us to the place we always wanted to be anyway, which is holy. My thought on this is, uh, guys, I've struggled with lust for much of my life. I remember being a teenager and asking a youth minister, how do I know when I've lusted and when I haven't? I mean, sometimes it's really obvious, but where's that line where you finally crossed it? And he told me, and maybe some of you heard this, he said, Matt, if you take a first glance at a girl, you know, she walks by, and whoo, she's attractive. You haven't necessarily sinned. It's not your fault you saw her, but if you look again, that's sin. And I went, but what if she walks by twice? <laughs> or what if I walk by her a third time? And here's the thing, guys. I don't think we can make lust a legalistic standard. I don't. And what I mean by that is this. It's a heart issue. It's not an eye issue. Jesus says this. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you the truth, to even have a longing for someone who's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. Meaning there's a heart problem. Interesting, in that same passage, at least in one of the Gospels, he says, and so if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And I've always found it fascinating in the context about adultery and lust, Jesus says, take out your eye and cut off your hand. Maybe the two things that lead us into lust the most. Now here's the thing, I don't know any Christian throughout time who actually practiced this, because I don't think Jesus was being literal, I think he was being hyperbolic. 
He was using hyperbole. He was using something extreme to make a point. Now, there is one church father, his name was Jerome, who whenever he was tempted, he would literally throw himself into the briar bushes to try to stop it. I'm not sure it stopped the temptation, but he had a lot of scars is my guess. What are you to do today? You know, you're not gonna be able to help that you see magazines and grocery stores. You're not gonna be able to help that there's gonna be pictures on websites. But you know what you can do? You can go the extra mile and do everything in your power. You could download accountability software like X3 or Covenant Eyes. You could choose, as Job says, to make a covenant with your eyes and never look at something sinfully or lustfully. And when you do, to fall on your knees and repent and do everything you can to keep a short, 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 short list of stuff with God. And the better you get at that, the more your heart will start to discern what's good and what's evil. And here's the bigger point, guys. When it comes to sexual immorality, Jesus saves us from this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, there's no other sin a person commits except for this one that's the same. It's not that it's worse, it's just that it's different. Because all other sins a man commits are outside his body, but this one sin he commits against his own body. And I heard one pastor say, this one particular sin, sexual sin, is the one way Satan can attack God. Because if your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit and he can get you to sin this way, then essentially he's hurt the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if that's literal or not, but what I know is it's a serious And if you go down the road long enough, it will lead you away from a love for God. It will own your heart. That's a dangerous place to be. And you're young, some of you, I know it. You're young and you think you can control it, I know it. You think you're smarter than it. You think you're better than it. You think, nah, I could do it when I want to do it. I remember one young man I was talking to, he'd asked me to hold him accountable, and his accountability report coming into me from, I think it was Covenant Eyes, whatever he was using, I was like, oh my gosh, like there's no beating around the bush what you're doing here. So I made an appointment, I sat down with him, I said, brother, I love you, what's going on? He said, man, I only do it for a few minutes. He said, I just, sometimes I get stressed, I just turn it on, then I turn it off and I'm done with it. I'm like, brother, you're missing the point. It doesn't matter if you're on for five minutes or five hours. That thing is owning you, and I want it to break this chain that it has on you in your life. He later got married and it came up in his marriage and he almost lost his wife over it. Thankfully, she was willing to stick with him and they went and they got counseling and praise God, he wrote me a letter years later and said, I just want you to know you were right. I'm thankful. And you're not stronger than it. You're not smarter than it. Jesus tells you it will own you every time. Don't give in. And I'm not just talking to the men. I may be using pornography references, but women, it's time to get rid of the movies. It's time to get rid of the books. It's time to start having a fantasy about a husband who's not the one you're married to. He may not be perfect, but go look in the mirror. You aren't either. And the best way to get him to change is not by longing for him to be something else. It's by praying for him. I long for the church to be this kind of place. But I'm way off, and I don't have a lot of time, so we need to get back to Revelation. Told you I could have gone for three hours. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 16. Repent of your sin. The word repent literally means, for those of you who are in the Army, Marines, Navy, it means about face. That's the best translation. You were going this way, and now you're going to turn. You're not going to kind of turn. You're not going to most of the way turn. You're going to completely walk away. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the crazy stuff, guys. Read Revelation 19, what the sword of the mouth of Jesus is doing to his enemies. It's terrifying. He tears him to shreds with the same sword. So here's the point. Those who are on Jesus' team, behind him, this sword is going to be used to protect them. 
but those who aren't behind him stand opposed to him. There's no middle ground where you get to be a bystander watching Jesus go to battle and go, go Jesus. No, you're either behind him and he's protecting you or you're in front of him, he's opposing him. And what he's saying is, those who think this is no big deal who are just gonna keep on sinning, you're over there, you're now my enemy and I'm gonna use this sword, this double-edged sword that cuts both ways and we're gonna go. Those are not words you wanna hear from Jesus, friends. This is a big deal to God. And it should be a big deal to us. But what happens for those, whether they're over there opposing him or, and they come over here or they're already over here, let's look at what happens to them. By the way, real quick, in your notes, um, if you have the, the uh, uh, app, I put the wrong verse down. I, it was a typo. It's supposed to say Isaiah 49, 2 through 6, and either way, I don't have time to read it, but here's my encouragement to everybody in here, whether you're online listening or in this room, go read Isaiah 49, and you'll find early on that Jesus says God has given him the sword of judgment, and I believe this is what John is talking about. Read the rest of Isaiah 49 as though Jesus is talking as the one here. It's a prophetic text about him, and then listen to what he says about those he attacks in judgment and those he protects who are his own. Go read it later. It's fascinating. Now, Revelation 2, 17. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that is hidden away in heaven. Man, I have a whole lot more to say on this. I don't have time to say it as deeply in this service. I spent time on that last thing more, so I'm gonna go quickly. Hidden manna, for those of you who don't know, God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, leads them into the promised land. They're in the desert in the middle, and they're hungry, and they're grumbling against the Lord. Oh, we were better off as slaves. We were better off in Egypt. And you know how this is like, right? You walk away from God, you come to him in faith, you say, you know what, that guy treated me like trash, I'm gonna turn to my Lord, he's gonna treat me good. That pornography, it's always owned me, I'm gonna walk away from that alcohol, I don't want it anymore, I wanna be focused on Jesus, I don't wanna be driven by money and greed anymore, I'm giving my life to Jesus, I'm coming out of Egypt and slavery where Satan is my king, and I'm coming into the promised land where God is my good sovereign father and ruler, but in the middle, in the land between where we are right now, sometimes we look back and we go, oh, but man, that was fun. Oh man, there was some joy there, there was some pleasure there. And this is what the Israelites are doing. And God says, I'm gonna feed you from heaven. And you'll find this in Exodus chapter 16, verse four, a whole thing you can find there in 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm gonna rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people could go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And so every day manna, literally this bread from heaven fell down and people were told to go out and gather only what they needed for that day. Don't gather any more. But some of them didn't listen because some of us aren't really good at listening to God. And so they gathered up more than they needed and they went and they ate and what was left, they tried to hide it away and hoard it for later because they weren't sure they could trust God to provide for them. And so what happened is that, that, that manna that they didn't eat turned into maggots. Yeah. And then God got mad and he said, why do you not trust me? I said I would provide for you. Only get what you need. So they started listening and learning and they went out and started gathering only what they need. Well, what happened was later all these things, uh, or sorry, some of this manna was put into a golden jar and it was put inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant held three things. It held Aaron's scepter, it held the Ten Commandments, and it held a golden jar with some hidden manna in it. You'll find this in Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 12, verse 4, no, 9, verse 4. It's in the notes, but I don't have time to go there. The whole point is it's there. And, and what now John is trying to say, what Jesus is saying to John, and John is telling us in Revelation is, for those who are victorious, for those who hang on, who stick around to the very end, who don't quit on me, who don't get distracted by sexual sin and false idols, those who are faithful, I'm gonna give some of the hidden manna. And you go, so God's gonna, 
open up the Ark of the Covenant and take off the top of the golden jar and pull some old bread out? Like, I don't get why that's cool. Maybe this will help. John's other book he wrote, John chapter 6. By the way, John 6, 6, 6 is about the Antichrist. Just saying, okay. John chapter 6. We'll deal with that later. Verse 29, John 6, 29 says this. Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Here it is. The only thing God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said with a sarcastic laugh, ha, 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 I added that. I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am that bread. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now put these pieces together like a puzzle. And Jesus is saying in Revelation to John, to the one who's victorious, who doesn't give in to the wiles of this world, I will one day give him the food that will last forever, me. And Jesus is telling them, look, I know you're going to be sidetracked. You think this sexual sin thing, you think it's going to fulfill you. You think if you could just find a guy who could hold you and tell you all day long how much he loves you and how important you are to you, uh, to him. And if, he could, if you could just do that, if you could just find a man, finally you wouldn't need anything else. Jesus is going, yes, you will, because he'll fail you, and I won't. Don't eat of that. Eat of me. Eat this bread. Eat this body. This is what we're going to do when you take communion. You're literally going to take this bread and you're going to say, thank you, Jesus, for always being good, always being faithful, always meeting my needs, always caring for me. You never leave me wanting. You always, always take care of me. And that's what Jesus is saying in Revelation 2. Don't turn to this world for hope. But then he says, and to anybody, verse 17b And I will give to each one who does this a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. (laughs) And I'll just say to that real quick, guys. I don't have a lot of time. I wish I had more. The most important part of this text is the new name. Throughout the Bible, there are people who get a new name, and with that new name comes a new identity. Abram is changed to Abraham, and when he did, he didn't become the guy who has no children. He became the father of many. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and the entire nation is named after him because he wrestled with God, and he was found to be faithful. Simon's name is changed to Peter. Every time a name is given in the Bible to somebody, it's a change of identity, What Jesus is saying is anybody who hangs on this world and does not give in to the things of this world and stops bowing down to the things of this world and stays faithful to me to the very end, I will change your identity. You think about how powerful this is because some of you know this. If you're walking around with that big A on your chest because you're the one who's committed adultery and you feel like everybody's always looking at you and they always know what's wrong with you, Or maybe that's not your particular sin, but maybe your struggle is homosexuality and you look around the church in America and you think, gosh, there's no place for me. 
Or maybe it's because you know secretly you've been on your phone and on your computer and on your tablet when nobody else is around and you feel dirty. Or maybe it's what that guy did to you and nobody will believe you. And you just carry this guilt. The good news is you have a, a true soter, a true savior who says, I'm gonna give you a completely new identity that's not based off what you've done or where you've been. It's gonna be based off me. And we'll find out later in Revelation, Jesus says, I have a name, and it's my name, Jesus' name. And it's the only name that's important, and it's the name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's very possible what he's giving to you is his name. I'm gonna change it from this sinful identity to this new identity marked by the blood of Christ. Now, last thing, what is this white stone? And to be honest, scholars aren't 100% sure. I can't sit here and tell you with absolute certainty what it is. I can tell you there's some great ideas out there, but I think the two that hold the most weight are these two, and it doesn't matter which one it is or if it's both, because you'll find in symbolism, it often has more than one meaning. In ancient times, uh, we actually took a lot of our court system from ancient Greece and Rome. We learned a lot from them. And uh, they would have a jury, and when somebody was brought in, and finally the jury, the, the court trial was over, and they determined, were going to determine whether somebody was guilty or innocent, they would have black stones. If they were guilty, they would tap, toss these black stones in the middle, but if they were innocent, they'd take a white stone, and they'd toss it into the middle to say, this person's innocent. If that's what Jesus is saying here, then what he's saying is, for those who hang on to the end, no matter what you've done up to this point, from here going forward, in the end, I'm going to give you a white stone saying, innocent, forgiven. Washed clean, set free, not guilty. The other option I think makes the most sense is at the end of some of the games, what they would do is when they had crossed the finish line, they would hand them a white stone and that was their ticket into the banquet at the end where they would bring all the racers together to celebrate all the hard work that they had done. If that's what Jesus is saying here in this text, then what he's saying is after you finish the race and you are victorious, remember in the past, the churches we read two weeks ago, he gave them this crown. In this case, he's saying, and I'm gonna give you one of those stones and this is your entrance into the banquet. Read throughout Revelation, read throughout the apocalyptic texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the very end, there's this massive banquet, this huge feast, and Jesus has gathered together his people and there's just gonna be a big party as we're now in the presence of the Lamb. And in fact, yesterday with our volunteers in A Beautiful Life, I read them out of Luke 12 where Jesus says, and for my servants who faithfully do what I've asked them to do, I will bring them in. I will put on an apron. I will seat them at the table and I will serve them, Jesus says. What king serves? Our king. And this white stone with a new name on it is your entrance fee because it's the one that he gave you and he changed your identity. And here's the thing. I want that for you. I want that for me. I don't want you to leave here today the same way you came in, and I'm so terrified some of you are going to. If you could just slip out the door, if you could just make it another couple hours, you'll feel better in the morning after you wake up and get some food in you. Maybe you don't need to feel better. Maybe you need to feel guilty. Maybe you need to feel convicted. Maybe you need to do something. Some of you are so outside the will of God, you don't even realize you're opposing Jesus, and it's gonna end badly one day. And you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. And I don't know why, 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 why. But you know when we get baptized, we find that we take on the new clothes of Christ. And our sins are washed away. That's how we get white. And I just want to encourage you. If you came here today, you're like, I didn't expect to get baptized, but you're ready. Would you just come forward while we sing this next song and say, today's the day. I don't even know why. 
We got clothes for you. You can go home dry. You don't want to go home dry? You can wear your clothes. I don't care. That's fine too. But don't wait another day. Become one of the next hundred here that give their lives to Christ. Now listen, church, church. If you need to talk to God and you need to do some business with God and you need to clear out some junk with God and you need to get your heart focused on Him because you've been focused on sin, do it right now. Do it. So I'll stand and I'll pray. Jesus, you are a true Savior. You are the one who brings true healing and true health and true life. God, we've turned our hearts to so many of the things for saving and for healing. And God, none of them can fulfill. God, I pray as you give us a new identity, a new name. God, as you wash away our sins, as you make us clean, as you give us the not guilty statement. Father, we know that comes by the blood of Jesus and not because of our hard work. So God, I just pray right now, would you move in this place, convict sinners of sin, and encourage the righteous to hang on and persevere to the very end. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.